A solitary soldier conducts his patrol on Mars. He is the last one remaining to guard this place, this home. When and where the invaders are coming is of little consequence. The more persistent thought is that ammunition is running low. Before long, he will be left with just his fists. He looks left, then right, then behind. Flash! In an instant, the world melts away, and he finds himself dressed as a frog. He sees water nearby, and, unable to walk, endeavors to hop. Flash! Again, reality morphs, and now he is trapped in an ancient tomb. A puzzle promises something, but is it escape or a welcome release? He climbs onto a platform and looks down. Flash! He is back on Mars. What happened, he wonders? Waffling tailors happened. Welcome to another episode of the Waffling Tailors Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jay, and unfortunately, Squidgy is not with us today. He's not feeling that particularly well. He's a little under the weather, so feel better soon, Squidgy. Also, um, hello from the future, because he's editing it. So, hello, Squidgy. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, so today we're joined by, by Mono of the uh, Tokyo Game Life Podcast. Hello, Mono. How are you doing? Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. It's great to have you. It's great to have you. Um, we've we've talked to people who are located in the future in uh, mm. in previous episodes, but not this far into the future. Uh, right. Who are literally on the other side of the planet. Uh, right. In an area of the world that I've only spent 24 hours in. So that's oh. a, a little thing about me. Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> the first time that I went out to Japan, um, I've only ever been to like the, the south of Japan, Fukuoka, Nagasaki, mm. Arado, places like that. Um, and yeah, the longest amount of time that I spent in Tokyo was 24 hours. And that was because my plane was delayed, which meant my connecting flight was delayed. So they put me up in a hotel. So that's, that's my entirety of <laughs> my Tokyo <laughs> experience was, uh, dealing with jet lag in, in a hotel. <laughs> well, Fukuoka is a great place. I went there a few years ago and it has the best tonkotsu ramen in Japan. So that's a good place to spend some time. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Um, I was out there in 2019, just before the world went all wobbly. Um, right. <laughs> in fact, when, when I when I landed at the airport back in the UK, they were like, did you go to China, perhaps? And I was like, no, <laughs> is that a bad thing? But anyway, we'll breeze past that because we don't like to talk yes. about the wobbliness. But uh, yeah, whilst I was out there, they had um, the, uh, the, it was the Godzilla um, anniversary and Shin Godzilla had just come out. Um, ah yes, and uh, and they had um, what was it? Uh, Space Invaders invades Canal City, which was a oh, ton of cool. fun. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, for people who are listening who don't know about Canal City, it's essentially a huge shopping center, multiple floors, uh, you know, video game arcade at the top, and it has a canal running through it. That's why it's called Canal City, right? Uh, but uh, the Space Invaders, it was Space Invaders Groovy invades Canal City. And essentially they, 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 uh, they projected this game of Space Invaders onto the side of a hotel. Um, and you had to clap in unison to this music to actually shoot the bullets up at the, at the space invaders. They did it like five or six times per day. And each, each sort of round through it, um, they collated the high scores. And then the, the group of people who got the highest score won, but there was no prizes or anything. It was just loads of fun, right? <laughs> yeah. Just like the, the joy of victory is enough. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Just getting everyone together and just playing the game. Is, Canal City is really a great place. That's the first time I ever ate uh, Ichidan ramen was in Canal City. So I will always remember that. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Fukuoka has a special, well, Fukuoka and Hirota have special places in my heart because that's like, mm. they were the first real J- uh, Japanese places that I went to, but also got a bunch of friends there and, uh, you know, some friends who stayed there and stuff. So mm. it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's always got a special place in my heart. And whenever people say to me, where should I go in Japan? I'm like, okay, you can go to Tokyo. You'll get, you know, the, the culture shock of all of that. But then, you know, fly south. Go to Fukuoka and Hirado and witness sort of, I hate to say this, but real Japan. I mm-hmm. feel like the, like the center of Tokyo is very uh, touristy and very everything's right. like if you've ever been to a big city, like, um, you know, if you've been to the bit of New York City that everybody knows, You've likely been to Tokyo, just they're speaking English. That's the only difference, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. uh, A few years ago, I went on a two-week trip from, yeah, all around Kyushu. So like Fukuoka to Kumamoto to Kagoshima and like did some day trips as well. And yeah, that was a great experience. And I understand what you're talking about where you feel kind of more, I don't want to say authentic Japan because, you know, everywhere has its own vibe. But there's a, Fukuoka has like a lot of cities, but also quite a lot of nature and a lot of unusual things that are really only in uh, Kyushu. And I also took a trip to Yakushima, which is an island, about two hours, a two-hour ferry ride from Kagoshima. And it's a very beautiful island that's inhabited only by a few people. And it's the inspiration for uh, Princess Mononoke uh, because it has these huge cedar trees and this like overflowing nature. So it really feels like you were in a totally different planet. So Kyushu is a wonderful place to visit. Absolutely agree. Um, the, so the reason that I really uh, enjoy going to Harado is for a very similar reason. There's a, about a 90-minute ferry ride from uh, the port in Harado. You get to an island that, um, as far as I can tell, and from the, the, the locals who live there, is called Oshima, which quite literally mm. just means big island, right? right. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it similarly is inhabited by about six or seven families. Um, mm. And uh, it, Unfortunately, it looks like the school's going to close soon because ah. there's no more kids to educate, right? So right. Um, they're all going sort of they're all going to the to the mainland to get their education, which is a real shame. But there mm. you go. and that that island, when you when you get off of the ferry, there are a couple of uh, shops. Oh, we will get around to the the podcast in a moment. There are a couple of <laughs> shops and stores on the on the sort of the ferry area, not like the dock. And then mm. you take five or six steps past those, and there's what can only really be described as um, uh, if if you if people who are listening think medieval Japan, the sort of jigaideki sort of samurai mm. movies, those kinds of houses, and they're all just abandoned, 
which is a real shame. Mm. They're just sort of sitting there and uh, that sort of traditional old school Japanese architecture with the sliding doors and you know all that kind of stuff. Um, mm. But yeah, it's it's it, I, I agree completely. Kyushu is is wonderful. It's it's mm. what what you expect from Japan if you come from that uh, Studio Ghibli style, like you said, <laughs> uh, and Princess yeah, Mononoke exactly. and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Right. Cool. Um, yeah, let's let's talk real quick about Tokyo Game Life then, because um, well, yeah. I've waffled on for ages about <laughs> Japan. No, I understand. Japan's <laughs> it's amazing, so it's easy to talk about. Now, uh, which is like one of the motivations for my podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm the host of Tokyo Game Life. The pitch is, I would say, I would say Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Uh, another podcaster, Josh from the Still Loading Podcast, he told me like, oh, your podcast is kind of like a slice of life of Tokyo. And I thought, oh, wow, that's way better than what I've been saying. So I also include that into my intro. So it is kind of like a gaming slice of life podcast where every episode I have a feature where I talk about mostly a place to visit in Tokyo or Japan relating to gaming. It can be like an arcade or like a retro uh, gaming store or like a cafe. Uh, One I did recently was uh, it's called 8-Bit Cafe, where it's just like a normal bar. Well, it's more of a bar than a cafe, but they have a lot of like gaming themed drinks. Like all the drinks are named after like Metroid or Castlevania, weird things like that. And they also have like a lot of old school video games you can play while you drink and eat curry. So these types of places are something that I think are really only in Japan or especially only in Tokyo, uh, because no matter what hobby you have, there's a place for it in Tokyo. And in terms of gaming, I think we don't really think that, oh, yeah, J- sorry, yeah, games come from Japan, but we don't think, oh, games come from Tokyo specifically. Like so many classic games and gaming franchises and characters were quote unquote born in Tokyo. Like, for example, of course, Final Fantasy, it was made by Square, who has a headquarter in Shinjuku. And even Nintendo, they're housed in Kyoto, but Hal is from Tokyo. So, for example, Kirby is technically, I guess, for, from Tokyo. Uh, so I try to highlight these very interesting places and not just places because, you know, sometimes it is hard, you know, every week to go to like some sort of gaming related uh, place, even though you, pos- you really could in Tokyo. Uh, but I also try to do some maybe features depending on, especially about Japanese gaming that is not really talked about on a lot of other podcasts or not really featured a lot in a lot of like mainstream Western media. Uh, sometimes I try to focus on a mostly Japan specific or Japan only franchise or genre. For example, I did a feature on Coldcept, which is kind of a board game slash card game. And a few of them are in America, but most of them are not. So I interviewed like the biggest Western Coldcept fan about this series. And I also did one about Otome games. And if you don't know what Otome games are, they're dating visual novels, but they're targeted towards women. So this is sort of a niche genre, but it has a ton of fans. And it's not something that you would see really reported on like Kotaku or IGN. They're they're not really talking about the latest Otome game. So I wanted to try to get some perspective from people who really have this interesting passion or like insider knowledge about some obscure Japanese gaming element. And I want to bring them onto my podcast to share their stories. So I try to like listen to different people's perspectives and try to introduce unique things about Japan and Japanese gaming culture uh, to my listeners. And of course, it has like the general like 
you know, I'm playing this and here's the news, but I try to make it more Japan specific news. So I try to focus on, of course, mostly Nintendo games, but also a lot of like retro games, sometimes like some Japan only games. I talked about uh, For the Frog, The Bell Tolls, which is a Japan only Game Boy game developed by Nintendo. And it has a lot of important alumni, like who worked on Metroid and Kid Icarus. But this game never came out to the West. So I wanted to give that a bit of love. So, yeah, it's just a place where I celebrate, you know, Japan and Japanese gaming and also Nintendo. So if any of those things are interesting to you, definitely check out my podcast. I like it. I like it. Um, it's it's something that I would certainly be interested in. Um, I'm hoping that in the next maybe couple of uh, months, maybe half a year, mm. I can get back out to Japan because it's been yeah way too long, right? Um, yeah, and, and my, they said. Japanese, uh, oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, they said that there won't be any visa requirement uh, for visitors starting from, I believe, October 11th. So after that date, I think. Uh, more and more foreign tourists can come and visit. Uh, so, yeah, you can use my podcast as a resource. Like, oh, what should I do? Then, oh, well, just listen to my podcast. And I have, like, you know, definitely over a dozen interesting places to visit in Tokyo already. And, you know, many more in the upcoming episodes. Oh, cool. Um, one one question I would have about that, and it might be mm. uh, the, the web developer, well, the software developer in me speaking, but... Um, <laughs> Have you thought about perhaps sharing like a, a a map of the places I've been? Uh, you know, like so you hit the page on the website and there's a map of here's where we talked about this episode. Here's where we talked about that episode. So then folks can maybe orient themselves. I definitely have thought about that because um, I actually I do some you know web programming as well. So I've made similar things, but uh, I yeah it takes some effort. And of course, when you're a podcaster. Any free time you have working towards your podcast, you're thinking about like, oh, how can I, well, I need to, do I need to make more audio content? Oh, do I need to make more articles for my blog or do I need to spend time marketing it elsewhere? But yeah, the map idea is definitely something I've had. And even maybe I'll just draw it like on a napkin and just like put the picture up there. So it'll maybe come eventually. Cool. Cool. Cause yeah, I can, uh, I can imagine, um, uh you know, using, using your, your show as a, a great way to actually point out different places. Cause like I said, my, uh, I'm hoping to get back out there soon. Um, but you know, my skills in the language have, have dropped off considerably because it's been <laughs> you know almost three years since I went. So <laughs> I <Right. laughs> may have to take some more lessons or whatever. Cause I did, <laughs> um, I did uh, Japanese as part of my comp sci degree. And I remember oh. the first time I went out there, I was like, yeah, I could do this. I'm talking to people, talk to people. And then, um, uh, just sharing behind the scenes, my, uh, my most recent trip out there in 2019, I was like, yeah, I can, I can hold up a conversation, but obviously, uh, the, but the problem was that the people that I went with weren't, um, weren't, uh, as, as knowledgeable, shall we say, as in the, in the language. Right. So we're sitting in a, at a restaurant and they're like, what am I having for dinner? I'm like, okay, give me a moment to read. <laughs> I got to read <laughs> and pause the yeah. entire menu first. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's where it sort of fell over for me, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping to get back out there. I think it would be really cool to, I think, I think if I spent more than 24 hours actually awake in Tokyo, mm. that would be quite a good thing, right? <laughs> Definitely. Exactly. Cool. Okay. Um, so yeah, what about, um, uh, people finding the show then? How do they go? Out? Is that, I mean, uh, there's obviously a website, right? The, yeah. Be on the web without being, a, without there being a website. <laughs> yes. The main website is tokyogamelife.com, all one word. And of course, if you're, using a podcast app, you can just search for Tokyo Game Life 
and it'll pop up and you can subscribe and listen to all my episodes. I try to make them more, how can I say, like uh, not dated. That way, uh, of course, if you just talk about maybe the news section does get dated, but you can stop listening once the news starts. If you, if you just want like, oh, I'm interested in this place in Tokyo, or I'm interested in this interview with somebody who's really passionate about something. Uh, so yeah, definitely check it out and don't be afraid to look at some older episodes. Uh, listen to like whatever topic um, that interests you. I recommend personally um, a good interview I did was with um, the fan localizers of Sakura Wars GB, which is a Japan only spinoff of the Sakura Wars franchise. And I talked to them and it was a really great uh, insight in not just the game, but also the series and also what it takes to, you know, do a fan localization. It's way more than just, you know, translating in Excel. And I also really recommend my uh, my episode I did on Pokemon Wonder, which is like a, it's described as a kind of a nature escape game. Um, and it's not something a lot of people have experienced because it opened, I want to say maybe 2021. So unless you were in Japan, then you didn't get to see it. But I think if people do experience it, I think they will flip out because it is really an amazing it is probably the most spectacular gaming related thing I've done in Tokyo, which is saying a lot. Uh, so I really highly recommend checking that episode out to find out oh, what is like a nature escape game. Uh, so, but you know, any episode that interests you definitely check it out. Cool. Cool. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I'm a big fan, so yeah, I can definitely talk to the, the, the episodes. And like you say, it's my, like, until you get to the news section, it's kind of like evergreen content, isn't it? Really? Like, yeah, evergreen. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah. What you, what you talk about will, will be as valid in two, three years or whatever until you get to I the hope. news. But then even with the news, you can then say, oh, right. Okay. So two years ago, they were talking about this. Maybe in yeah. a later episode, we'll circle back and, oh, this is the new thing about that new story, right? <laughs> right. Of course. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah, talking about, uh, real quick, talking about, like, uh, video game-related attractions in Japan, um, the, there have been a whole bunch that, like you say, we don't get out here in, in well, mm. out here where I am, <laughs> in the West. <laughs> you know, like, uh, one of my, my favorite ones to read about are the, the Resident Evil ones, where they're, like, immersive experiences, oh, yes. um, which are really fun, because, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the, well, okay, I'm a big fan of the original Resident Evils is, um, mm. not so much a huge fan of the direction it's gone in with the sort of, Hey, here's an action game that doesn't really have survival horror anymore. It's just run around and shoot. Here's a, here's a babillion bullets. Go shoot all the things. Right. right? <laughs> but yeah, I, I like hearing about the, uh, the immersive experiences that they put on. Cause it's like, it's, it's yet another way to explore that, uh, that property, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. Less the case of let's just run an ad in a newspaper or an ad on the radio or TV or YouTube. It's like, hey, come and have an actual act. like if we could make this game into a real experience, this is maybe what it would be like, right? Of course, yeah. Uh, Japan has a lot of like very interesting marketing. Sometimes I wonder, like, is this actually making money? Because it seems like you've spent quite a lot of money like putting this up. Uh, for example, a lot of Japanese companies like to do some sort of like kind of like a press conference almost where you know. It's like two or three guys, they come out and there's like a big background and they announce like the smallest thing they could possibly announce about a game. Uh, Atlas in particular, the developer behind the Persona series, they are notorious for this where they will have event after event, like concert and then like a special interview and then like some sort of promo exhibit. 
And it seems like this cost quite a lot of money to put on. And then they just announced their next event. So I'm kind of wondering, like, why did you even hold this? But I think that's something unique about sort of the Japanese marketing cycle is that they like to you know, put themselves out there, even though it might not be effective or not. Right, right. So it feels, uh, from from what you're saying, my interpretation of that is that it feels a bit more like, here's a bunch of pomp and circumstance about, hey, keep us in right. mind. You know, we may have a thing coming up. <laughs> yes. I like it. I like it. That's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Because like, yeah, when a, when a, when a big, uh, when a big ticket uh, video game comes out of here, it's like, it's in the news. Uh, or maybe it's not in the news. Uh, there's loads of YouTube, you know, it hits the, the gaming journalism uh, websites and that's about it. But then right. I, I suppose perhaps because the the gaming news cycle is so, it's, it's I would say more than a 24-hour news cycle, right? It's maybe a 12-hour yes. news cycle. Um, you know, like uh, especially out here, game video game comes out and then you play it for five minutes. Guess what? Another video game's come out. You play that fight, and guess what? Another one's come out, right? And so mm, it's like trying to keep ahead of that would be quite difficult. Whereas instead right. of saying, here's the property that's coming out, you know, and be a fan of the property, it feels, again, my interpretation of what you've said, it feels more be a fan of our our company sort of thing. Mm. Look, the, here's, the, here's the company right here, and this is what we're going to do. Um, yeah. Keep us in mind for when you want to buy a new game rather than buy the latest game here's the latest game hmm. and the next latest game is coming out in 10 minutes. It's like, you know, like you say with Atlas, right? Rather than remember that there's mm-hmm. a Persona 5 and perhaps a Persona 6, let's be honest, there will be one, um, rather hmm. than there being this idea of there is a Persona 6 at some point, it's like, keep Atlas in mind. We're, we're going yes. to be around for a while and when you next want a JRPG, <laughs> maybe you should go with an Atlas one. Yes, of course, definitely. Okay, so we've talked about we talked about the show. Let's let's do a little bit of uh, uh, some of our segments. We'll come back to the show a, a, in a moment, if hmm. that's all right. Um, so one of the things that we like to do um, is we like to talk about what we've recently been playing, and the reason for this is pretty simple. Um, I am fo- I foolishly grew up and became an adult, um, <laughs> uh, which means that I have adult responsibilities. Which means you know most of my time is spent when I sit down. I'm like, okay, I've got got two hours i'm going to play a video game i'll start something and i just watch an hour and a half of a progress bar filling up right it's an updater mm. and I'm like well this is a waste of my time um so what i like to do is i like to get a, a handle of what people have been playing recently and whether they'd recommend it now obviously i feel like some of the titles that you may have been playing might be japan exclusive <laughs> which might be <laughs> a little difficult for me to play and obviously the date of recording We've just had Tokyo Game Show, so there might be some things yes. uh, that you've played recently that won't be coming out very t- anytime soon. <laughs> I- I'd be interested to find out what it is you've been playing. Sure. Well, I'll go easy on you and pick a game that is out uh, worldwide, and I've been playing what I can only describe as an unhe- an unhealthy amount of Splatoon Three. So that's the uh, latest uh, big release from Nintendo, uh, specifically like the Nintendo EPD team. So I. Uh, Yes, yeah, Splatoon 3 is like the, of course, the latest in the uh, very popular shooter franchise from Nintendo. So when it was announced years ago, the original uh, Splatoon game in 2014, E3, I think many people were very skeptical about, okay, Nintendo is making an online shooter, which is a quite a crowded genre. And Nintendo is not known for 
their amazing online services, and they're not known for their shooters. Uh, Metroid Prime is the closest thing they've got to it, but even that is more of like a first-person adventure instead of a traditional FPS type of game. And of course, the Wii U was not successful, so many people were skeptical that Splatoon would be a, a hit at all. But it was, and now we have Splatoon 3, and some recent news is that during Splatoon 3's opening weekend, it sold 3.45 million copies in Japan alone, which makes it the fastest-selling game in Japanese history. Not Switch game, game total. So I think that is like quite a remarkable story to go from like a very unusual idea on like a console that like was pretty much dead by the time Splatoon 1 even came out to being like a huge kind of cultural sensation in Japan. Uh, so it's quite an important game uh, and I'm having a, a ton of fun with it. I'm a huge Splatoon fan. I bought the first game day one, bought second game day one and yeah, the third game also as soon as possible. And yeah, it, a lot of people say, yeah, it's more Splatoon, but I also think that is a good thing. Uh, a lot of the additions that are in the game, they're not really big, like on paper, there's no huge new change that you would, you know, put on the poster but a lot of the additions that they did change are incredibly smart and it really makes the game easier to play and makes it more fun and it makes you more willing to experiment with a lot of things. And I do think it is the most content rich Splatoon game at launch. There's just so much to do in it. And oftentimes when I, especially when I first started, I was like, Oh, what, what should I do? Should I, should I just play the, uh, the normal uh, turf battles or, Oh, should I try the single player mode a bit? Or actually there's a card game here. Oh, there's also the horde mode salmon run. So, Oh, how should I divide my time? So it's almost like, Oh, you have too many options. The only problem is, Oh, this game is just too fun to play is this <laughs> the major drawback. See, I, I don't under, I, I, how do I put it? I don't understand this fascination that, that, that video game development companies have of we can't just do more of the same right more yeah. of the same is great because right. it proves like if if the previous version of the same sold really well just keep doing that right you yeah. don't always have to innovate and i feel like it's when uh when video game development companies try to innovate that they fall short quite a lot right and it's like well yes. you know all I want is another one of the same thing, right? Give me a new shiny version of the same thing. And I will fork over my £40, $60, whatever the current going rate for a, a video game is in yen. But I will fork that over plus tax because I know I will have fun, right? And I feel yep. like uh, EA gets a lot of flack for this, for their sports games, mm. right? Because, I mean, how many, how many ways can you write a football slash soccer game? There's right. only so many ways you can do that, right? And so I get that. Um, and so, and so I, I don't really quite understand the hatred that EA gets for mm. just releasing essentially that more of the same, more of the same always works. Like Mario is a fantastic formula, Zelda, Castlevania, mm. um, Metroid, just to pick on the Nintendo titles. They are a fantastic formula and they work. The Square Enix games, the Final Fantasies, the, um, uh, Atlas's Persona series. We brought that up earlier mm. They, they work really well because it is more of the same with a few tweaks here and there. But it seems that like, especially over here in the West, it, ne it seems like there, there's this drive towards, no, it has to have a new reason for it to exist. And I'm like, well, yeah. or you can just sit and play it and have fun, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, Nintendo in general, they are very revolutionary in a lot of ways, but they are also iterative. 
like for example, a lot of the Zeldas, you know, uh, you know, Ocarina of Time until Skyward Sword. Those that's a lot of iterative changes. And some people say that, you know, it's it falls into a formula and they do a different twist on the formula. But, you know, once Nintendo kind of reaches the point where they feel like they can't iterate anymore, then they revolutionize it like they did with Breath of the Wild. And Mario was also like that, like the NES and, you know, even SNES Mario World. You can see like a very straight thorough line between all of them until Mario 64 came around and they, you know, they changed everything. So Nintendo likes to iterate until they feel like, oh, we kind of ran out of ideas or we want to try something completely new. And Splatoon is like that as well. Um, There are a lot of changes in Splatoon 3 that are small on paper, but big once you realize it. Uh, For example, they totally changed all the uh, sub-weapons and also the specials for pretty much every weapon. So in Splatoon, you have like a main weapon, which has like a different type of attack. For example, there's shooters, which is like a traditional gun. And there's also like buckets, which you need to, instead of like holding down the button to continuously shoot, you need to press it like each time and it shoots out kind of like, yeah, imagine like a bucket of water that you're like shooting out. And, you know, there's also like sniper rifles and there's like very unusual and unorthodox weapons as well. Uh, Now they added like a katana that shoots out like kind of like a, almost like a master sword beam from Zelda. Um, So even though you might have like, okay, in Splatoon 2, I use this weapon because, oh, it fits with the way I play. But now they changed like your sub weapon. Your sub weapon is just like a smaller attack that you throw out, like typically like a grenade or something. And also the special, once you fill your special meter, you do some sort of super attack, um, which are, it can be an attack or it can be like an assist as well, like a support uh, ability for your team. And so they totally changed all of these. So it really makes you think about, even if you played Splatoon 1 and 2, well, your weapon is maybe it, the typical use is the same, but a lot of your other backup abilities are totally different. So maybe it doesn't work with you as well as it did before. Like, for example, in Splatoon 2, I really love the arrow spray, which is just kind of like the base, like it covers a lot of ground. So if you play Turf War a lot, it's really easy to cover a lot of the arena. But this time they changed the uh, sub-weapon instead of like the suction bomb, which is a really powerful grenade. They changed it into like a more, like a weirder grenade that I really didn't like. And also the special is different. It's kind of cool, um, but it's not exactly the same one as the Splatoon 2. So now I think, well, this weapon kind of got, not nerfed, but it's different in a way that I'm not really gelling with. So I thought about, okay, well, I need to find like a, maybe a new main. And I did with uh, a new weapon. So this weapon has like, not the same as before, the sub and special abilities, but it fits so well with my playstyle that it feels like, okay, wow, I would never have tried this weapon before in Splatoon 2. But now that they've totally changed a lot of things in Splatoon 3, it really feels like very fresh. I think for Splatoon 3, a lot of people were expecting some sort of huge new mode. Uh, For example, Splatoon 2 had Salmon Run, which is a horde mode that uses like the mechanics of the normal game, but in like a new way. So a lot of people wanted something like that. Uh, Like, for example, a lot of people were wanting a Battle Royale type of game since, of course, these are or type of mode, since this is like the hottest genre. Fortnite and PUBG are so huge. And many people thought, well, I want to see Splatoon's take on that, uh, which would be cool. But I think instead, Splatoon thought about taking what they have and change it and think how, seeing how they can improve it. Uh, for example, one of the biggest changes, which seems like so small on paper, 
Like, why would you even advertise this? But it works magically once you experience it is the uh, lobby overhaul. Before you really just like started the game and you just kind of waited for it to load. But now you have a lobby where you can practice shooting, where you can see your other teammates kind of moving around. And it's in like this big hub and you can just walk around the hub. Like there's an upstairs and a downstairs. There's a locker area and you can like decorate your own locker, uh, which customization is like a huge new addition. So like this lobby, you're thinking, oh, well, it's just a new lobby system. How is that like a, how is that interesting? Why should I buy the game for a new lobby system? But once you're walking around and experiencing it, you realize that, okay, this game is way more active than before. And a lot of the changes they made are just so, so smart. Uh, so like Splatoon 3, it's really hard to put down. I put in like so much time into like Splatoon 3 and I'm going to keep putting in time. Like after we finish recording, I'm just going to jump back into Splatoon 3. <laughs> right now is the uh, Splatfest. So it's like the big, big like festival event. So it's a lot of fun. And uh, I think if you, yeah, a lot of people wonder like, why did they, why isn't this just DLC? And I think once you get your hands on the game, you will understand why it's not just DLC because a lot of the changes to the main game are really smart. Uh, the single player mode, I think is the best single player mode um, because it, it takes like, it's uh, more open than the previous ones. And they added a card game, like a completely separate card game, which seems a little weird, but the card game is like so fun. Uh, I'm like a big like TCG fan and I really love like video game card games because, uh, you know, you can enjoy battling and growing your deck without, you know, paying a lot of money. Um, and just everything they added in Splatoon 3 is for the better. So, and it is kind of like a refresh. Splatoon 2 came out over five years ago. So sometimes it's great to just, you know, everyone start, everyone start from ground zero. Everyone try to learn like these new weapons. Everyone try to learn the new maps together. And so that's why I feel like it just can't be like, it's way more than DLC. Everything they did was just so smart and so clever, even though it's not like a huge, you know, thing you slap on the poster or thing you slap on the back of the box. Like, oh, now it's open world Splatoon or, oh, now it's Battle Royale Splatoon. It doesn't have that, you know, three word like catchphrase that will sell you on the game. But what it does have is what Nintendo was very good at is like perfection, like uh, gradually taking a genre, gradually taking a game and tweaking it and perfecting it until it's at its peak. And I really think the Splatoon franchise right now is definitely at its peak. Maybe in Splatoon 4, maybe that is when they will try to like overhaul a lot of things because it really makes me wonder like, oh, where can they take the franchise from here? Because it's just like so smart and so uh, fun right now. So uh, I think if you are curious about the franchise, definitely jump in now because it's a great game. If you didn't like Splatoon 2, I don't know if you would like Splatoon 3 since, you know, it is the core mechanics are the same, but maybe you will since a lot of the changes they did like are quality of life focused and really, it really refreshes like the weapons and the maps. So you might find something that in this game that you couldn't find in the previous game. I like it. I like it. Um, I do need to, to start playing games on my switch again. I, uh, I bought it just before the world went wobbly because I was doing a lot of commuting <laughs> and I thought, hey, I'm sitting on the train, I could pay, play for 20 minutes or whatever, then just put it straight back in the bag and I'm good to go. And then right. you know, get home, I put it into the dock and continue where I left off. Um, hmm. Problem was the you know, the whole world going wobbly put the kibosh on that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, and uh, Squidge, actually, uh, the co-host Squidge, and I used to play a lot of games uh, online 
sort of uh, cooperatively with that. So, like, yes. you know, he's a, we're both big fans of the uh, Koei Warriors series, Samurai Warriors, oh. Dynasty Warriors, Warriors Orochi, that kind of thing. And uh, I believe it was Warriors Orochi 4 had come out, and we spent like three or four nights just like throwing the console on and just sit and play for several hours, mm. which was great because, you know, sometimes you, sometimes a video game can just be that thing that you just switch off bash a bunch of buttons and chat with your mm-hmm. friends uh, with, exactly. uh, with um but uh what i'm hoping to get into in the next week is not something i've been playing recently is i've bought downloaded and uh uh sort of set up the uh teenage mutant ninja turtles cowabunga collection oh. so hopefully the end of this afternoon i'll be able to start playing that that take me all the way back to you know one of my very first video game memories was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES. And like, that's on there. So like, let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> do you think you'll, uh, did you beat it when you were a young kid? Oh my goodness. I still haven't been it now. Um, <laughs> <never> <laughs> did you at least get past the uh, swimming level? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, a friend of mine likes to joke that the swimming level gave him PTSD, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got past the swimming level, but it's when you get to like, the the overworld as it were of like new york city and you're driving around in the car that's where i was like i, I literally don't know where to go i don't know what to do so i would sort of kind of get bored switch it off and go do something else you know <laughs> mm. so maybe it deserves that uh that uh second look and perhaps with a little bit of a strategy guide or something pointing out which buildings to go in maybe that's what i should do <laughs> mm. what about yourself did you ever finish it when it first came out Oh, no, I did get past the swimming level, like maybe one time. But of course, you know, growing up in like the uh, in the 90s, if you're a 90s kid or I guess, yeah, in a late in 80s kid as well, you definitely played like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for the NES. I think I read like it was actually one of the highest selling NES games or maybe the highest selling third party title for NES, mm-hmm. which is pretty crazy. Like you could not imagine today. Oh, the highest selling third party title, like the highest selling third party PS5 game is a Ninja Turtles game. That would probably not happen. But, you know, or even like a licensed game being the highest selling third party game is quite rare. But yeah, it is a classic game. I, I kind of think like, oh, is that game a good game? I want, I wonder that as a kid, I liked, you know, playing it because, you know, it is the Ninja Turtles and everyone did have unique attacks. It really felt like, oh, you're playing Leonardo, you're playing Michelangelo, but, it, you know, it's crushingly difficult. Uh, so as a kid, you're just playing, you know, those first few levels over and over again. Uh, but I heard the Kaobun collection is really, really well made. Uh, and it has something interesting. It has like the Japanese version are also in there as well, because some of the games, maybe the Game Boy titles or the uh, the tournament fighters is like quite different from like region to region. So I think the company is maybe Digital Eclipse, I want to say, is the company who put it out. And it seems like they were really passionate about, you know, putting as much as they can into this game. And it's almost like a, mu- like a digital museum for retro Ninja Turtle games is what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, there's like uh, artwork from the games and videos that you can watch and stuff like that. There's a, there's a ton of content there, which mm. it makes sense, right? They're charging full price for essentially a collection of video games that are, I mean, I don't support, I, I don't support piracy at all, but you know, right. you could go to a, rom website and download these games right and it would Mm. be maybe a couple hundred megabytes on your computer if that right so i totally get where they went we need to package the games but also provide all of this content to go with it 
right? And like mm. the different, um, the different region versions as well. I mean, because like if you compare that to, um, I bought a is it Castlevania Legacies collection or something like that? It's like the first three Castlevania games on the NES, nice. and then mm. like like one of the SNES titles, one of the Mega Drive slash Genesis titles, and two Game Boy games, and I'm like, right. It, this didn't even justify the 400 megabytes it took to download it. What's going on? <laughs> right. Mm, there's, yeah. there's maybe, maybe a hundred megabytes of content there. So it's like, mm. what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's interesting for retro collections. You kind of think about, Oh, what else do they need to add into it to make it worthwhile? Some people are just kind of happy that it's, you know, on modern hardware. And if you buy it on switch that has the, like the added bonus of like, okay, this game is now portable. Like never before has it been portable, but now it is. So that's a big appeal. Uh, but yeah, some people are okay with like, just slap the ROMs on there and let me play it legally. That's fine. Others want like more quality of life changes, like, you know, speeding up battles or like rewind mode. Um, so yeah, everyone kind of wants something different, but I'm really glad that, you know, especially the Kawabunga collection, it really seems like they didn't, do the bare minimum. They really went above and beyond to put as much as they can into the game. Yeah, totally. Um, and and it kind of fits as well because obviously that was released not very long after the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder yeah. Revenge as well, right? And like right. that game is, how do I put it? There's a whole bunch of people that have been on the show recently who have essentially said that game is way better than it deserves to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> A side-scrolling brawler in the 21st century should not be that good, but right. it is that good. <laughs> yeah. I, I also, I played it uh, when it came out, and yeah, it is great. Like, it is pretty much what you would expect from, like, a 21st century, like, old-school kind of, like, Konami-inspired Konami inspired brawler. Like, it's pretty much what you would want from it. If I did have a criticism, is that it is kind of maybe a bit too straightforward. Maybe they could have changed more or maybe added some, like, a bit more, how can I say, maybe some more new mechanics or maybe something new to like each level to make them more distinct. But, you know, I had a ton of fun. Like I completed it like several times over uh, because like, you can jump into any level uh, whenever you want after, you, after you've cleared it. And so you can just go to the last level and like, oh, I can, I see three people are playing it. I'll jump into their game and like help them, you know, fight Shredder or whatever. So I think, you know, that game is like, well, it's pretty much exactly what they advertised. And I had a ton of fun with it, but yeah, I did. It did kind of make me, you know, turtled out because, you know, oh, I played, you know, this one. So, oh, the Cowabunga collection comes out a few months later, but I kind of felt like, oh, I have my feel of the Ninja Turtles. Uh, but I did hear a lot of great things about the collection. So I'll pick it up, you know, down the line. Sure. Sure. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, that's why I've, I've held off playing it so far. Cause I'm like, I want to mm. have like a, a whole afternoon where I can just sit put it on the big screen and just sit there with my controller and just relive those memories without, like you say, being turtled out. Right. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Um, so what uh, have you been playing anything else? Uh, what else have you been playing recently? Uh, well, I did attend the Tokyo Game Show, uh, so I played quite a few unreleased games. Uh, so I guess I can just go through them quite quickly. 
at the Tokyo Game Show, you really only get about 15 minutes for each game, which honestly, I think is quite a lot, to be honest. Uh, you know, it could just be five minutes and then you're shown the door. But I think after 15 minutes, you're giving quite a lot of time to kind of get a feel of, you know, the controls at least and maybe what the game is going for. So the game, I think the most high profile game I played there was Sonic Frontiers, the new Sonic game that is open zone, as they call it. It is very Breath of the Wild inspired, and it is kind of a take there. It is Sega's take on an open world Sonic game. And so, you know, this game has been like hotly debated because uh, trailer came out and people hated the trailer. And then there's some impressions and people both loved and hated it based on their impressions. I walked away kind of neutral about the game. I wasn't super impressed by it, but I do think it has some potential. Uh, for example, the open world seems quite interesting. Like Sonic moves pretty well in the open world. Um, the camera is a little herky jerky. For some reason, I'm not sure if that's the, just because of the controller they gave me. For some reason, I played it on an Xbox 360 controller, uh, which is like really weird. I don't know why Sega can't afford, you know, like an extra PS5 controller, but th that's what they gave me. And I think the open world, it, visually, it looks quite nice. Uh, it does kind of look like Sonic is modded into the game, like it's an Unreal Engine demo or something. So it looks a little strange at times, but, you know, the textures look nice. And, you know, yeah, Sonic doesn't really fit very well, but, you know, the game still has like a style to it. And the combat was kind of interesting. Like the um, bosses require a bit more strategy and thinking than just, you know, hitting like the homing dodge. And there is like some on rails level as well, like the cyberspace, I believe they call it. That seemed a bit, you know, so-so to me. Like the open world was actually more interesting than the on rail Sonic part. Uh, so it wasn't like Mario Odyssey, for example, where you play Mario Odyssey and Mario feels like butter. He feels amazing to control. It's definitely not like that. But I think if Sonic gets a bit more, you know, you learn attacks and learn maneuvers throughout the game. And once you kind of buff up Sonic a bit, I can see the open world being a bit more interesting. So I walked away thinking, mm, you know, it has potential, but it didn't make me like I wasn't blown away. Um, some other games I played. I played uh, Super Bomberman R2, which is the sequel to Super Bomberman R. Um, and the Super Bomberman R is just kind of a standard Bomberman game. I bought it basically because, well, I just want to play Bomberman. So this is the only one that's out. So I'll just buy this one. It was on sale for cheap. And so they made a new one. And, you know, demoing Bomberman is hard because it's Bomberman because it's the same game that it's been for 30 years. Uh but there's a lot of new characters this time around with like special abilities. In the first game, you had to like unlock them and it was such a grind. Now, a lot of them are unlocked at the start. So I think from the get go, you can have a bit more fun. And they did change the graphics a bit. Like the explosions look more realistic, which is kind of funny. Um, and it feels a bit faster than the original game. So I think if you like Bomberman, you will probably like this game. Um, another high profile game I played. I played a Atelier Riser. Sorry, this game is so hard to say. Atelier Riser Three, uh, the newest game from the Atelier franchise, uh, a franchise that I have never touched, but I've been really interested in because they keep making them. So I, I wonder, like, well, there must be something interesting about the game if it's been going on for like over twenty years now. And I do like JRPGs, and the Atelier series. If you're like unaware of it. The main gimmick is like item crafting and alchemy. 
there's like a huge emphasis on that. And also like the story is mostly relating to not about like, oh, the world is ending and we got to defeat some huge demon. It's more of like slice of life or like small scale conflicts. So uh, it has quite a fan base, but when the Atelier Rises series started, that is when it really exploded. Uh, I've read some like reasons why a lot of people say, oh, because Risa has such a great design and that's part of it. But also like the combat is more action focused now. It's a mix of like real time and also like uh, like turn-based battles. And the graphics are also like really beautiful. Like it has this like painterly watercolor style that is like really visually impressive. Uh, I was quite like blown away by like how it looked kind of Breath of the Wild inspired. Um, so this was actually my first time to play this this series. So I don't know if jumping into like the third game of this sub-series is the smartest idea, but I had quite a lot of fun. Uh, the battles are like really interesting because you can do, you know, like three hit combos and then you can like summon somebody to jump in or you could like do a spell. Uh, and the open world, well, it's not open world, but it has like a big zone that you can explore that is quite inter- like quite open and you can go wherever you want. And, you know, you can ride a dolphin suddenly. You can just swim. And then there's like a dolphin point that you can just summon a dolphin to ride. So it's like a really like interesting series, I think. So it makes me want to play the first game. Uh, so, and some other smaller indie games I played. I played Oni. Uh, I believe the subtitle is Road to be the Mightiest Oni. It's similar to Okami. Uh, it has like this cel-shaded art style. And also the combat is you're in like a combat arena and you're like fighting these monsters and you need to do like a finishing attack on each monster. The art style looks like very Okami-like. So I think they're going for that audience. And I played another game called Wanted Dead from Soliel, which is a small Japanese studio who is also working on Valkyrie Elysium from Square Enix. And it's kind of an old school action game, but by old school, I mean like PS2 era. Now, if you say old school, it's getting very confusing. It's like, oh, do you mean NES era? Or, oh, actually now, like, the PS3 is old school. Do you mean that? So it's like, oh, how do I use old school correctly? I'm not really sure, but um, (laughs) it is like a, like, very PS2, Xbox, like, GameCube-inspired game where you're just an action person and you just go through the stage and you just cut up and shoot up people. It is kind of like a cover shooter as well. Uh. Like the setting is you're a Hong Kong police officer and you've got a katana for some reason. And you've also have a robot arm um, because why not? And yeah, it's just kind of a straightforward action game uh, where you're just, you know, going through and just mowing down people. Uh, But it is very stylish visually and there's a lot of different attacks you can use. So I think if you're interested in those types of, I'm trying to think of what other game is similar to this, maybe like binary domain um, is one or, trying to think of like rise to honor that jet league game for ps2 uh i don't know why i thought of that maybe just because some sort of like you know hong kong action connection but uh it's quite cool and i'm not sure if have you ever played metal gear solid 5 i have not i gave up after metal gear solid 2 (laughs) well um a character in that game is called quiet and she's based on a real actress um named stephanie justin and she is also like uh working on this game and also the main character is kind of modeled off of her. So it's kind of weird because like, oh, Quiet is now in a different game, even though it's just this woman. And the final game I played at Tokyo Game Show is a VR game called Ru- uh, Ruins Mages, 
I hope I'm saying that right, where you are a mage, but yeah, you can, it's a quest VR. So I believe that is, I always get these mixed up. I believe it's, um, is meta make Yeah. I believe meta is making this VR. Okay. I get all my VRs mixed up, but <laughs> I think it's on like different platforms as well, but yeah, it's a VR game. And so, uh, you're like a mage. And so you use the controllers to like, do like magic attacks. So you can like shoot out a fireball or you can like do like an electricity AOE attack. And you also have a shield. And a lot of VR games, they try to focus on like very realistic visuals because of course it's like right there. So it wants it to feel like you're in real life, but this one has a more like anime cell shaded look. Uh, so I think this is quite like a different take on the VR genre. And I haven't really had a lot of experience with VR. So like you really have to move if you want to do something like when you're blocking with the shield, it's not like, Oh, you twist your wrist. You really have to move your arm in front of your body to block with the shield. And if you want to do like a, like a fireball, you really need to put your hand out there. Like you're holding a gun almost. Uh, so you have to move quite a bit, which is kind of fun and interesting. Um, but since it's an indie game, the indie game section in TGS is quite small and cramped. And so you have to be very careful if you're playing a VR game in this section. Because you can very easily like knock over something or knock over somebody. So uh, a few times, like the, the people helping me were, you know, they're trying to move things around because I'm very close to causing a disaster. Sure. Um, so yeah, those were the games I played at uh, TGS. So a mix between like some bigger games and some indie games. Um, yeah, so it's you know it's always fun to play a game that's not out yet. Um, so yeah, uh, the games I'm most interested in. I'm trying to think like, oh, what was the best game you played there? And I'm trying to think, and like the one that was most interesting to me was oddly like Atelier Riser 3. It makes me really want to try the first game. Um, and yeah, Sonic, I think has potential. A lot of people, you know, that's the game people want to hear my opinions about because, you know, there's a lot of hardcore Sonic fans out there. And even like in the line for uh, to play it, there's many people with like Sonic t-shirts, like Mega Drive backpacks. They've got their Sonic plushie on their hips. So this is like, they're going to church right now for this demo. So, and I am a Sonic fan as well. Um, So, you know, I want this game to be good, but yeah, right now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a bit on the fence. Like, Oh, is it going to be good or not? Honestly, I can't say I do think it has some potential, but I'm not blown away by it so far, but we'll see. Sure. Sure. I like that. Um, The, it's interesting that you said that, because I can imagine TGS being, huge right yes um a couple of years back squidge and i went to egx which is the european gamer expo down in oh. london and um when you get there you know you you get a hand of the controller and you can play a game for however long you want first uh, real footage oh, of oh. Streets of rage 4 that i saw was me standing in line for an hour to be the next person to play streets of rage 4 so like the difference between yeah you can play it for as long as you want versus where you got 15 minutes or you've got, you know, a certain amount of minutes and then we've got to let the next person try because there's so many people. Right. Um, right. And then my other thought when you were describing it was, um, my goodness, I hope Sonic frontiers isn't another Sonic adventure. <laughs> you remember that? I, yeah. I am a Sonic adventure fan, especially Sonic adventure Two battle. Like I understand these games are not good. Like I'm not going to sit here and tell you these are good games, but there are kind of guilty pleasures. Um, especially Sonic Adventure 2 Battle. Uh, Because 
And it has a lot of fans because, you know, if you were a Nintendo fan, it was the first Sonic game on Nintendo hardware. So it felt like some sort of like, like unbelievable moment. Like, wow, Sonic is finally on Nintendo platform. And for Sonic Adventure 2 Battle, like the, because uh, yeah, you have like different characters. You have like Sonic and then like Tails and Knuckles, and they all play wildly differently. And the Sonic and Shadow segments, you know, they're qu- they're enjoyable, I think. There's enjoyment to be had in them. The Tails and the Knuckles parts are like, they're, those are not fun at all. But <laughs> the Sonic parts and Shadow parts, you know, there's fun to be had. And also the Chow Garden in Sonic Adventure 2 is definitely like, I think unanimous, unanimously beloved. And so in order to like improve your chows, you need to play the game to like collect vials and things for that. Well, if you're going to replay the game, you're going to replay the levels you like the most. So you're kind of replaying your favorite levels over and over again in Sonic Adventure 2. So it kind of like, I don't want to say brainwashes, but it kind of like tweaks your brain to make you think it's a good game because you're really only focusing on the best parts once you get into like the chow garden aspect. Um, and yeah, Sonic Adventure 1, it has that segment where you're racing against the uh, the killer whale when that mm-hmm. killer whale jumps up. And so, you know, after that, you're just like, well, that was the best part of the game. So, yeah, but you you always remember that killer whale. So again, it kind of brainwashes you where it's like, yeah, the controls were kind of bad and the structure of the game is weird, but it has that killer whale segment. So, you know, I give it A+. Plus. So, oh, totally. uh, yeah. and yeah, I, but I, I'm a, mostly a fan of like that 2d Sonics, like uh Sonic mania. Like I love that. I think that's probably the best Sonic game to be honest. Um, and I'm a big Sonic two fan. Yeah. Sonic like 3d Sonic games. It's like, you know, flip a coin and, um, you know, some people like, you know, colors and some people like, uh, what was the werewolf one unleashed? Um, but some of these three other 3D Sonic games, like the what was it, the Secret Rings and the Black Knight, like those were I did not like those at all. Um, so for Sonic, it's really like I don't know, flip a coin and maybe it'll be good or maybe it won't be good. But yeah, I'm 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 hoping like Frontiers, you know, I'm hoping like hardcore Sonic fans find what they want in that game. Um, and honestly, I'm hoping that they somehow make like Sonic Mania two. That's what I'm most excited about. So we'll see one day. I'll point out that obviously I, I'm a big fan of uh, Sonic Adventure as well. Uh, well, I think I prefer <laughs> the first one to the second one. Oh, really? Reasons I can't really explain. But uh, yeah, nobody can explain why they like Sonic <laughs> Adventure. It's just you like it in- inherently somehow. Yep, yep. You either like it or you hate it, and you can't explain why you like it. But you can yeah. definitely explain why you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, uh, I totally get that. Um, mm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so you've been to TGS on the day that we're recording this, you're actually going to be releasing a TGS episode. Um, yes, I believe. So, you know, if folks want to hear more about that, definitely go check out Tokyo game life, uh, the podcast as well, because you know, you'll hear all of these stories and loads more. So definitely go check that out. Um, what I'd like to do Mono, before we, before we sort of, uh, exit our conversation, cause I realize I'm using loads of your time. Um, no, no problem. Is, Oh, thank you. Um, I wonder if we could do a segment called "Get Control of Yourself." So this sure. is um, this is based on this uh, there's this tweet 
by Sin Species, who's a great person. Um, oh, yes. Essentially, yeah, yeah. Essentially, he said, uh, you know, which which controller is the best and which controller is the worst? Which controller bites the bullet and which controller gets the award for being the world's greatest controller? And we like to ask people mm. because everyone's got a great, you know, everyone's got their own opinions and all the opinions are great. And, you know, I like to hear everyone's different opinions of the controllers that shaped their lives, if that makes sense. Right. Well, do you have any of your favorite controllers? And they can be, they can be any reason. It could be the aesthetics, the feel, the design, memories of being able to actually play or not play games with it, whatever mm. you want. I think uh, for the best controller, of course, I'm a hardcore Nintendo fan. So I think I'm preaching to the choir when I say probably my favorite controller is the GameCube controller. Um, so the GameCube controller, you know, it is a very odd piece of hardware. A lot of people don't like it. But if you were like a Nintendo hardcore, if Nintendo was in your blood, you were probably a huge fan of the GameCube controller. And it's a bit hard to explain why. Because, uh, of course, when you first look at it, it's just like this. A lot of people call it like a play school. I don't know if they have play school in uh, the UK, but it's like a yeah. children's toy uh, company. Like, oh, it's like a play school controller because it's got all these weirdly colored, colorful buttons and it's these weird shapes. But I think the, the controller is good because Nintendo developed their games around the controller, mm. uh, which is not something that a lot of other consoles can say. Like the PS5 controller, you know, uh, Sony is not really making their games based on like the controller at all. Maybe like the, the haptic feedback a bit, but that's a bit more of a gimmick than like the main focus. But Nintendo, all their first party games are really focused around the GameCube controller. Uh, for example, the uh, action button, the A button, is huge and it's in the center of the controller, which is like a very bold and daring uh, decision, but it's one that makes a lot of sense because it's the button you are pressing the most. And looking at it, it communicates to the player, somebody who is not, you know, a hardcore gamer. Okay, this is the button that is kind of like the confirmation button. It's green. So it's the button you're going to be pressing and your thumb naturally rests on it. So if you're not sure what to do, just press that button. And of course the B button it's not used as much, so it's smaller and it's red. So that's communicating like cancel or kind of the opposite of the A button. And of uh, the X and Y buttons are, you know, they're called like kidney beans or, you know, they're kidney shaped controllers. Um, you know, all the buttons are kind of different shapes. So by not even looking at them, you kind of know like what button is what button. And of course, the, the uh, triggers, like the adaptive triggers, uh, they felt great and it feels really comfortable in your hands. And so, for example, like Super Mario Sunshine, like controlling Flood really is relies on the haptic triggers, the adaptive triggers, like how much you shoot the water Basis is based on like how hard you're pressing into the button. And honestly, like the ergonomics of the controller just feel wonderful. Like when I held it for the first time, I thought, OK, this controller feels perfect. Um, and. So, yeah, when I think of great controllers, I think of the GameCube controller and, you know, they still have it. You can go to a store and buy the GameCube controller for the Nintendo Switch today because, of course, hardcore Super Smash Brothers fans, you know, they were really into Melee and they, and again, Melee is kind of designed around, you know, what buttons you're pressing are just designed around the GameCube controller. Like a, like a phrase is like C-sticking, like when you want to do like the smash attack, instead of using like the control stick and a, at the same time, you can just like flick the C stick to do the uh, smash attack. So that's something that is a mechanic that is completely designed around 
the ergonomics of the GameCube controller. And people are used to that. And even today, I now I use like the Switch Pro controller to play Smash Brothers, but I still think, okay, the GameCube controller, the C-sticking part, that is the superior input method for this specific game mechanic in Smash. And so, yeah, it's so funny that like, oh, you can buy the GameCube controller for new Nintendo hardware. Like you can't say that for anything else. Like Sony is not selling like the PS2 controller to attach to the PS5. Like that would be absurd. Um, so yeah, my favorite controller, I would definitely say GameCube controller. Excellent. Excellent. Are there any that really sort of leap out as this is the worst thing I've ever experienced or the worst? I want to, let's stay in like the Nintendo sphere. I think maybe technically like if you want to say what's the worst Nintendo controller, maybe the virtual boy controller, uh, because again, most people have probably not played the virtual boy. And if they have, they were 100% focused on like what they're seeing and not exactly the ergonomics of the controller. But the controller, it feels like kind of small and it's kind of like this V shape. Like if you're not sure, sure what I'm talking about, definitely Google this afterwards. Like everything is like kind of tilting into itself and it has like two D pads. So one on the left and one on the right. So they're kind of doing what they're kind of predicting, I guess the dual stick controls, but you know, dual D pads is not dual sticks. It doesn't work that same way. Um, and the buttons are really small. And again, they're kind of like diagonal. Um, but, you know, I don't want to really like poke fun at the Virtual Boy controller because, you know, it's kind of kicking the system while it's down. Like Virtual Boy has so many other problems. It's not like the controller is like the reason why people didn't like it. So for one controller that I dislike, and this might be controversial because a lot of Nintendo fans also really like this controller. The one I disliked is the Wii U Pro controller. Um, so it is the controller they sold. Of course, the Wii U, the controller that comes with the system is the gamepad, the huge tablet, uh, which seems like a really ridiculous controller. But actually, I prefer to use that over the Wii U Pro controller. And the Wii U Pro controller is, a, on the surface, it is a typical like, modern gamepad. You know, it's got the four buttons, it's got the two sticks, it's got the D-pad, got the dual triggers on the top. So you're thinking like, well, why is this bad? Uh, for one, I just think it wasn't comfortable to hold. Again, like, I don't know, hand feel is a hard thing to explain and everyone is a bit different. But for me, it just felt like it was kind of like digging into my hands. It didn't really fit, felt like it fit into my hands. It feels like I have to change my hand shape to fit the controller instead of the other way around. And one reason why I just disliked it is that it has the dual sticks like on the top. So both of them are on the top. So PS5, they have the dual sticks on the bottom and Xbox and the Switch Pro now, they have like the asymmetrical sticks where like one is on top and one is on bottom. I vastly prefer like the one on top, one on bottom um, or even like the Sony way, like the two on bottom is fine. It's just like so weird to like, okay, my right hand, the stick is up and to press a button, I have to move down. It's just something I'm not used to. So I bought the Wii U Pro controller, but after I played it like for several hours, I thought this is just not working. So I went back to the the um, gamepad, the Wii U gamepad. And even for some games, because you can still use the Wii controllers for Wii U. So I used the Wii Classic controller. Uh, I'm not sure if people remember this, but you could like... Uh, the Wii remote has like a USB on the bottom 
And so Nintendo sold is called the classic controller, especially for like their virtual console games, where it's kind of just a, how can I explain it? It's almost like an SNES controller with two sticks. Um, and eventually they released a classic controller pro that has like more triggers and it has like a more traditional like design instead of the SNES one. It has like the, I don't know how to call it, like the handles of like the modern controllers. Uh, so I like the classic controller. I played like Smash 4 on Wii U with that like really old Wii classic controller. I think I was maybe the only person to use this controller when playing Smash, but I use I even like that weird Wii controller more than the Wii U. So my vote for like controller I d- dislike the most is the Wii U Pro controller. Excellent. I like it. I like it because yeah, um, yeah, the, the Wii U didn't sell that particularly well, um, oh. at least over here. Um, and so I don't think I ever even, I mean, I Googled whilst you were talking. I don't think I ever saw a Wii U <laughs> Pro controller at yeah. all. <laughs> right. Excellent. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Mono, um, I was wondering, um, just remind everyone where they can go to, to get your show, um, uh, what it's about and things like that. And we'll make sure to put all of the links into the show notes uh, just before sure. we wrap up. Sure. Yeah, first of all, yeah, thanks for having me. And if you want more of uh, me talking, uh, you can check out Tokyo Game Life. Uh, so you can go to tokyogamelife.com or search on your podcast app. And on the podcast, I also have a lot of guests as well that are more interesting than I am. So you don't have to listen to me the entire time. Uh, so don't worry about that. Uh, so yeah, uh, my newest episode, by the time that this episode comes out, the Waffling Taylor's episode, I have a deep dive on TGS, Tokyo Game Show. So I talk about not just only what games did I play, but also kind of the atmosphere of the place and, you know, important things like how to line up, like queuing strategy, and also like, oh, how do you eat lunch at TGS? So I talk about that. And I also have a guest on who also attended TGS. And so, and he's attended many more TGS than I have. So uh, you can also listen to his insight. And he also talks about games that I didn't play. For example, like uh, Resident Evil 8 VR. He has some interesting insight into that game. And yeah, just uh, go through my catalog. And if there's like a game that you're interested in or like uh, a topic that you're interested in, just go ahead and click on that episode. You don't have to go you know, in order. I have a lot of uh, really interesting topics. Like I mentioned before, Pokemon Wonder and Hard Off, which is a great uh, like used goods shop in Japan. I interview the uh, only foreign Hard Off fan ambassador uh, about this place and you know other places in tokyo like the nintendo tokyo store um many awesome places to visit in tokyo and also cool japanese gaming topics i interview some developers uh, like a indie developer in japan that's trying to launch his game i talked to him about that process so yeah a lot of interesting topics so please check it out excellent well um Mono, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. So thank you for spending some of your time. And like I said, right, I'm I'm over in the UK. You're mm. over in uh, Tokyo. We're literally on the opposite sides of the planet. So it's like, yes. I don't know, coming up on midnight where you are? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Closer to midnight than not. Yeah, exactly. Right. So yeah, <laughs> thank you ever so much for, for for being with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 
Yeah, no worries. Um, so, uh, yeah, you've gone and listened to another hour and minutes of Waffling Tailors uh, talking. Um, if you want to find out more about us, head over to wafflingtailors.rocks. There will be a link in your podcatcher that you're listening to this on directly to the show notes, and there'll be links to Mono's show as well in those show notes. Um, in the more expanded version of the show notes on the website, we've also got, we'll have some uh, text that's written about the episode and some links and some photos of the controllers that we were talking about. Maybe some footage, if I can find it, of TDS, just to add a little bit of flavor. Um, <laughs> and if you want to find out more about us, just hit Google, Bing, whatever you search the internet with, DocDocGo, type in Waffling Tailors, will come up. We've got Twitch, we've got Twitter, we've got Facebook, and all that kind of stuff, so definitely check that out. And we also have a Discord as well. We've kept this rather quiet, but we have a Discord server, so if you want to get in there and have a chat with us, potentially be on the show, even, you know, if Mono is still around, you know, you can have a chat with him about what's going on there, you know. We're all there, so come along and check it out. All of those links will be in the show notes. Um, all I really have to say is, uh, see you later, folks. Intro music is Among the Stars by Muse Station Productions. Outro music is I Need You Watashi no Sabate by GH. Spoiler break music is Spectrum Subdiffusion Mix by Phonics. Palette cleanser music is Breathe Deep, Breathe Clear by Siobhan Dagay. See the show notes for more details.